Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, this is the week of the big June FOMC meeting, although it's really going to be a dud. For a while, there was this speculation that the Fed was going to pull the trigger and increase interest rates for the second time in, what, 10 years or something like that, for the first time this year. But pretty much, I don't know if anybody expects the Fed is going to raise rates on Wednesday. You know, it's a two-day meeting. It gets started tomorrow, and we get the announcement in the afternoon on, on Wednesday. But, you know, the Brexit, that was one of the things that they were concerned about. Now the polls are showing that, Brexit or Britain exiting the EU is becoming more and more likely. And that was one of the things that supposedly the Fed was concerned about. Again, I just think all that stuff is an excuse. I mean, they're really concerned about the U.S. bubble economy and the problems domestically, but they don't want to acknowledge that. So they want to try to uh, rationalize it or blame things on problems abroad because that doesn't you know, play as badly at home to talk about, well, we're just worried about things happening internationally. But that vote is looking like, you know, it may go the wrong way as far as the powers that be are concerned. I've already mentioned on this podcast that if I were in Britain, I would I would vote to go. And again, it's not because I am anti-free trade. I'm for free trade. It's just that the EU is no longer about free trade. Yes, that was the pretense that got it started, and it might have been a good idea but for the fact that no idea that involves more government can ever be good. Because the problem with government is that it grows and grows and grows. It's like the camel getting its nose under the tent. You can't let that nose in because then the entire camel is going to be in there. And that's what's happening in the EU. And the British are finally saying we had enough with it. You know, it's too bad the British don't have enough with their own big government. Uh, but I guess they don't mind big government imposed from Britain. They just don't want it imposed from Brussels. But whatever benefits uh, member nations got in the beginning from freer trade, they've already lost from regulations and taxation and micromanagement coming out of, uh, out of the EU. And as I said in my podcast before, the only reason that there was a need for an EU was because governments imposed too much tariffs and too much regulation. And theoretically, the solution was, well, let's have some other government entity that will try to circumvent all these other governments. And they made the deal with the devil, and it didn't work out. But, you know, the same thing is true in the United States. The states, I mean, the original American colonies, we all made a deal. We came together. We abandoned the Articles of Confederation. We went for a less weak central government, and we passed the Constitution of the United States, and we made a bargain there. But the problem is the federal government is not abiding by the constitutional restraints on its powers. The federal government 
is not acting the way the framers envisioned. It is usurped power that was not granted to it in the Constitution. And so the federal government is no longer a benefit to the United States, just like the EU is no longer a benefit to Europe. The difference is the EU disintegrated a lot quicker. The U.S. government lasted for a much longer period of time as being, I think, a positive uh, factor for the colonies. But the EU quickly degenerated. But I would say this, I mean, if there was a petition on the ballot of just about any state in the union, no, forget that, any state, I think any state in the union would be better off seceding from the union. So if you could have a vote, if American states could have a vote, and we can vote, do you want to leave the union? Do you want to leave the United States and become your own country? I think every, every state would be better off leaving. But the problem is, of course, we know what happens when you try to leave, right? We had, we had the Civil War, right? So the, the government doesn't let us leave. Now, fortunately, if the British vote to leave the EU, the EU can't send troops to Britain and, and, you know, and declare war uh, like happened in you know, 1861. But I think that American states would be better off leaving the United States because they would be free from all the regulation and taxation emanating from Washington. Yes, they would still have to live with all the regulation and taxation emanating from their own state capitals or from their own towns, you know, municipalities. But every time you can remove a layer of government, you restore more freedom. You restore more prosperity. So I, I wish the British luck uh, with, their, with, their, with their revolution. You know, we were able to break free of Great, Great Britain, uh, you know, several hundred years ago, and maybe they'll be able to break free of the EU. But my point is, that's another cloud on this horizon that probably means that even if the Fed was going to raise rates on Wednesday, that's another reason not to do it. Of course, a more important reason is look at the stock markets again. Once again, on the decline, I think the NASDAQ is down a little over 2% the last two days. The Dow Jones, I think, is down about 1.5%. It was down a little over 130 points today. Meanwhile, gold continues to rise. I think in the last two days, it was up about 15 bucks. Uh, nothing huge, but it is making some progress moving back up towards the 1300 level. It was up about 10 bucks today of that $15. We closed around 12.84. I don't know if the terrorist events of the weekend over in Orlando had anything to do with the weakness of the market today. Probably not, uh, but psychologically, certainly events like that, uh, you know, probably take some type of a toll and it may take a toll later on in some of these consumer confidence numbers, which by the way, are already on the decline. I looked at the numbers that came out on Friday and you know, I read that the terrorists that attacked this, uh, this nightclub that, or the, I don't know if it was multiple terrorists or this lone, lone gunman. I'm not really sure where they are yet on the investigation, but I read something about the fact that maybe his first choice was Disney World in Orlando. And so I don't know how he settled on, uh, on this nightclub rather than Disney World. But, I mean, it might have been worse. I mean, it could have been a lot worse if he was in uh, Disney World. Uh, and certainly the, the idea that maybe the terrorist might have gone to Disney World, that could be enough to get people to think maybe I shouldn't go, even though those fears are kind of irrational because, you know, the odds of actually getting shot by a terrorist are pretty slim, even though, you know, 50 people unfortunately lost their lives to a terrorist attack. Um, 
probably more than that lost their lives in car accidents. I don't know about the same day or how many, how my, I forget how many people die in car accidents, but clearly we lose a lot of people. Most of those, uh, those deaths involve alcohol. Uh, but I mean, that's, you know, statistically, there's not a very big chance of it. But of course, the media plays this up. And so psychologically, when consumer confidence is already down, so the Fed worries about this stuff. They worry about confidence. They worry about the markets because if the markets are rolling over, I mean, look at the financials. I mean, the European banks, most of these banks now are at new, not only new 52-week lows, they are the lowest they've been as far as my charts go back. And, I mean, I think they're about, what, 10-year charts. I'm just looking on my screen. But they're lower than they were at the 2009 post-Lehman financial crisis lows. I mean, that's a huge decline on these European banks. And, you know, they've got negative interest rates over there. You know, this is another example, again, of what happens when you get into bed with the devil, the devil being the government, because all the financials are in bed with the government. Of course, the government bails them all out, and so they all love the government, right, if you're a bank, because the government got your back. But you know what? This is what happens to you. And the U.S. financials, they haven't gone down to the Lehman lows yet or the 09 lows, but, you know, if the European banks are there, how far can the U.S. banks be behind? I mean, this is one of the reasons that I do not own any financials. And the financials were very strong in the last couple of years. In 2014 and 2015, the financials were very strong. And that hurt my performance because we didn't own any financials. Uh, but now, one of the reasons that the performance is so much better is because we don't own these financials and they're getting killed. You know, what I own instead of financials are gold stocks. And the gold stocks got killed in 2014 and 2015, but they've made it all back in 2016. So now it's the financials that get clobbered and the gold stocks that are on fire. So it's the reverse. And I think this is very, very early in this process of unwinding that trade where money is going to go out of the financials and it's going to go back into hard assets, real safe havens like gold and gold stocks. Now, the gold stocks the last couple of days have kind of surrendered their gains. They rallied in the morning on Friday when gold rallied and then they sold off. Even though gold was positive, the gold stocks were down. It was a mixed bag again today. All the gold stocks ran up right on the open with the price of gold. And even though gold closed close to the highs of the day, uh, most of the gold stocks, you know, barely crept back. Uh, the, the GDX was down slightly. Some stocks managed to close positive on the day. But you're getting some profit-taking in the gold mining sector. You know, where there isn't any profit-taking is in Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin uh, has taken off. And, you know, I've been a critic of uh, Bitcoin as far as the longevity. What I think ultimately is going to happen to Bitcoin. But in the short run, this thing has spiked up. It's over $700 uh, Bitcoin was just about $400, uh, what, a month ago? So we've had this huge run in Bitcoin. Most of it is coming out of China, huge Chinese demand. Obviously, Chinese trying to utilize the Bitcoin uh, platform to maybe get around some exchange controls. People are worried about a Chinese devaluation. Now, you know, I, again, I think that the Chinese currency is headed much higher. See, I think everybody who's shorting the Chinese yuan is going to get burned. I think that's one of these no-brainer trades that is going to backfire on the people who think it's a no-brainer. Uh, and there's some smart money that's been shorting yuan. And again, I'm betting that they're wrong. I think it's the dollar that's going to crack and that the yuan is going to go up. And I think when that happens, that could be the pin that pricks this new 
uh, Bitcoin bubble because I think what's going on, this parabolic move up, is not going to end well. So if I did own a, a bunch of Bitcoin, I would be selling into this rally. I mean, if you like it, you know, you could always buy it back. I mean, nothing goes straight up in a straight line. And this looks like it's, you know, this rally looks like it's going to go down. Now, does that mean that this is the absolute high? Uh, no, I mean, I think there's a lot of resistance. I mean, we spiked up above 1,000 back in January of 2014. And then after that, I think we sold off even below 300. Uh, so that was a pretty big decline. So there's going to be a lot of resistance as we move up. I mean, 750, 800, 900, 1,000. I mean, there's obviously going to be a lot of selling up there. I have no idea if it'll make it all the way up there. Uh, but if I was an owner, I would be looking to uh, get out. I wouldn't try to be jumping on board on, on it now for a short term. And it looked like when it broke out of about you know 400 or 500 that it could have a pop. Just, just technically, forgetting about what Bitcoin is, just looking at a chart of the the digital currency or cryptocurrency uh and just looking at it as anything else you know just a chart that yeah it's a breakout on the chart so there'd probably be some momentum but other than that i think that it's a little late uh to be speculating in it but the question is why is it moving and again all of this is indicative of a concern of a fear of a flight something is wrong in the market so financials are getting killed uh, you know, people are looking for ways out. Bitcoin is going up. You know, maybe Bitcoin is going up now because gold is kind of stalled out. I mean, it's moving up a little bit, but it hasn't broken through 1300. And so maybe Bitcoin broke through its resistance quicker. So maybe some of that money that might be going into gold, maybe some people went into Bitcoin because it was easier to move that needle because it's such a smaller market. But I think the bigger move is coming in in gold and that's where the chinese should be putting their money if they're worried about the yuan they should be putting in gold and of course another currency that's looking much much stronger that could be very problematic is the japanese yen i mean the japanese yen chart looks i mean it's right now today the yen is on the high for this move this is the highest the japanese yen has been i think since the late summer of 2014. And as the Japanese yen goes up, this is going to be very, very problematic. I mean, this is a big carry trade, meaning a lot of the traders are financing their speculative bets by borrowing in yen. And the yen strengthening is a very, very negative sign. And if it gets a little stronger, I mean, maybe if we move up another couple of percent, we can be in some serious, serious territory where we could hit some real uh, buy stops uh, in the yen. We can break out through some technical levels. Uh, I'm looking back at some of the highs in the yen. Uh, back in maybe summer 2013 and we take those highs out and there's really not much resistance until you go all the way back up to the highs from early 2012 and that would be a huge move up in the yen and you know if that's going on there's gonna be a lot of serious stuff happening in the stock market in the gold market and especially too if the uh, the British vote for the Brexit I mean the pound has really been getting pounded but I think if they leave I think that's gonna be positive for the pound I mean, in fact, the pound may rally right on the Brexit. I think all these fears about how horrible it's going to be uh, for the British are just, you know, they're just being drummed up to try to scare, scare people into, into voting to stay in the EU. You know, one of the ironies of all this is that the Swiss franc has been pretty strong uh, throughout the last uh, couple of weeks. Today it was kind of flat, but over the last week or so, the Swiss franc has been gaining not just against the pound, but against the euro. And I think a lot of people who were worried about Britain leaving the EU were, were buying the Swiss franc as a safe haven. 
But wait a minute. The Swiss are not in the EU either. I mean, so if leaving the EU is so bad, if you're worried that not being in the EU is such a bad thing, then why would you buy the Swiss franc? Because they're not in the EU either. I mean, the fact of the matter is Switzerland is doing well in part because they're not in the EU. And it's not like Great Britain is not going to be able to trade with Europe if they're not in the EU. I mean, look, Europe trades with Japan. They trade with China. They trade with Switzerland, right? I mean, they're not in the EU. I mean, they trade with the United States. We're not in the EU. You don't have to be in the EU to trade with Europe. So to say that, oh, it's going to isolate Britain from all of Europe is complete nonsense. The minute they leave the Eurozone, they'll renegotiate their own trade deals and they'll be back in business, except they won't have to deal with all the ridiculous regulations coming out of Brussels. You know, what I think some of the, the bureaucrats in Europe are afraid of is that if Britain leaves and they don't collapse, then other countries might want to leave too. It could be a, uh, a trial balloon and they don't want to see that balloon actually, you know, fly high and, and then everybody else is going to do it. So they want to try to prick that balloon before it even has a chance uh, to be set free. I want to go a little bit into politics, you know, kind of reminiscent of the old uh, Peter Schiff show days. I don't kind of spend as much time on politics on the podcast now. I mainly talk about uh, about the markets and the economy. But I want to talk about the new controversy surrounding Donald Trump and his supposedly racist comments about the uh, Mexican-American judge who is presiding over the lawsuit regarding a Trump University and some of the comments he made with respect to his belief that that judge is biased against him. And he's basing his belief that the judge is biased based on a lot of rulings that from his perspective and from the perspective of lawyers that he's talked to, the rulings don't make sense. The rulings are no good and maybe they reflect some type of bias on the part of the judge. And, you know, nobody really talks about how bad the federal judiciary is, but they're horrible. I mean, look at look what happened with my father's case. I mean, but I mean, that's obviously an extreme case, but these judges are biased. That's part of the problem. And a lot of the bias works its way into their rulings. It's not supposed to, right? I mean, if you recognize you have a bias, I mean, one thing you can do is you can recuse yourself, but if you think it's a bias that's not going to affect your ruling, you know, you, but you have an obligation to make sure that whatever biases you may have don't reflect your ruling. But you know what? Oftentimes, the judges can't help it. The biases uh, come in, and look, there's a lot of error. I mean, of course, a lot of uh, decisions, a lot of trials are reversed on appeal. Now, why are they reversed on appeal? Because the, the appeal court judges go back and say, no, the trial court judge, court judge made a mistake. So it's not like, you know, judges don't make mistakes. They make mistakes all the time. Problem is, so do the appellate court judges, too. They all make mistakes. The Supreme Court judges make mistakes. Look, they, they ratified Obamacare, right? That was a mistake. They put their own biases in there. Clearly, it was unconstitutional, but they wanted it to pass because of their liberal point of view. So politics always makes its way into the federal judiciary. And I think there's nothing wrong with Donald Trump pointing out the fact that one of the reasons that he believes that this judge may be biased is because the judge is of Mexican descent. He's a Mexican-American. He wasn't born in Mexico, but I guess his parents were, and he's, he's Mexican. Now, why would a Mexican-American be biased against Donald Trump? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there's so many reasons. And Donald Trump knows that. Look, Donald Trump has said a lot of things that have angered 
Mexicans, not just Mexican-Americans, but Mexicans in Mexico. Right? And more importantly, it's not just what Donald Trump has said about Mexicans, but the way the reporters have reported what he said, because that's even worse. So let's say you didn't actually hear Donald Trump's actual speech. All you did is you watched MSNBC you know, or even NBC or CBS, and you heard what they said Donald Trump said, right? Now it's even worse than what he actually said. And we know that there are a lot of Mexican-Americans who don't like Donald Trump, and that's putting it mildly. Look at all these anti-Trump rallies that are out there. There are a lot of people. You know, there there were people that were leading boycotts of Donald Trump's products because of the things he said specifically about Mexico. In fact, that's why he lost, right? Remember with Miss Universe? It was because of his comments about about Mexicans, that, you know, the Miss Universe pageant. So, obviously, Donald Trump has pissed off a lot of Mexicans. I mean, that's obvious. That's happened. And a lot of it isn't isn't because of what he said, but a lot of Mexicans are pissed off because they've just got the the uh, the conventional spin on what he said. Because the media doesn't like, a lot of these media outlets don't like Donald Trump, so they've vilified him, too. They've made it worse than it really was. So, yes, there's going to be a lot of Hispanics, Mexicans in particular, who aren't going to like Donald Trump. To say that is not racist. It doesn't make you racist to recognize a fact, a probability, that if he says things that are offensive to Mexicans, they're going to be more likely to uh, you know, have a grudge against him. So now he's got this judge who's coming up with a bunch of rulings that look very unfair to him. And Donald Trump is thinking, well, maybe the judge is biased. What might explain his bias? Aha, he's Mexican. Maybe that's it. right? And there is nothing racist about that. I mean, listen to his comment. Listen to the way he talks about how hostile uh, the judge has been. He mentions, look, you know, I'm very, very strong on the border. right? Maybe, maybe that's why. right? Listen to it. Uh, I think the judge has been extremely hostile to me. I think it has to do with perhaps the fact that I'm very, very strong on the border, very, very strong on the border, and he has been extremely hostile to me. This is a case that, in our opinion, should have been won uh, a long time ago. It's a case that we should have won on summary judgment. We win nothing with this. This is a very, we have a very hostile judge. Now, he is Hispanic, I believe, and he is a very hostile judge to me, and I've said it loud and clear. Does that sound racist to you? Also, he talks about uh, all the Trump haters, right? That there are a lot of people that hate Donald Trump, and a lot of those people happen to be Mexican. Now, this guy, this judge in this case, he's a human being. He can't help uh, some of his feelings. He obviously knows who Donald Trump is. I mean, his name recognition is like 100% right now, and he obviously watches the news, He's heard these reports. Maybe he doesn't even realize that some of those news reports are distorting the things that he actually said to portray him deliberately in a way that would antagonize uh, Mexican-Americans. I mean, obviously, the left is trying to create this idea that he's a racist, that he's this really bad person, and that he, you know, to, to try to you know, gather momentum against him or try to rally support uh, for Hillary Clinton. we got to stop this monster, this racist Donald Trump. So if the media is portraying him as a racist, particularly where his racism is against Mexicans, and here you have a Mexican judge sitting on the bench, how can this judge not uh, have a bias? And how 
difficult would it be, or rather how easy would it be for that bias to affect his rulings? And, you know, even the Republicans are abandoning him. You, you, you know, Republicans saying, oh, this is, this is textbook racism. No, it's not. I mean, everything that mentions race doesn't have to be racist. Just because you recognize a statistical probability in a race doesn't mean that you are racist, right? Um, you know, the comments about a lot of African-Americans, I've seen a lot of these comments where you have a high-profile trial and the accused is African-American, and but then the judge is white, or maybe the jury is too white, too many white people on the jury. And they'll always say, oh, the jury is biased, the judge was biased because, because they were white. Nobody ever accuses a, an African-American who claims that a judge or a jury was biased because they were white. They don't say that they're racist for thinking that. But again, a lot of it, I don't think it's racism. They're thinking about the cultural experience. They're thinking that, well, you know, the people on the jury just don't really understand what this guy went through because they come from a different culture, a different element. And so is it actually racist to have these thoughts? I mean, it's probably more so than what Donald Trump is saying. In fact, he goes out of his way to say, look, I've got I have no problem with it being Mexican. They're great people. I'm sure he's proud of his heritage. But the problem is I've antagonized a lot of Mexicans. And, you know, there's a good chance that this guy's got it in for me, which which is probably true. You know, I mean, if you antagonize a whole group of people and there's a member of that group who is in a position of power over you where he's making rulings and he's got to use his own judgment and there's a lot of subjectivity and he's got to decide. And, you know, it's like, well, the judge decides and that's it. Right. You you have the final say. I mean, yes, you can appeal. But at that point, the judge has all the power in the courtroom. He just makes a ruling and everybody has to deal with it. And clearly, if in the back of his mind, or maybe even more forward in his mind, he's uh, a little bit biased against a guy that uh, he believes to be a racist and very antagonistic to, to Mexicans. Uh, it doesn't seem a big stretch to think that the balance is going to tip in favor of the other party. And recognizing that has absolutely nothing to do with racism. He's not saying he can't do his job because he's a Hispanic. I mean, he, he's just as qualified to be a judge as anybody else. And he probably makes as many mistakes and has as many biases. But in this particular case, when you have Donald Trump as a defendant or one of the parties in the lawsuit, then in this particular case, it will make it harder for a Mexican judge to do his job, given all the negative comments that uh, were said about Mexicans. I mean, look, what, what if Donald Trump uh, were said a lot of things that were interpreted as being anti-Semitic? And then you had the judge who maybe was a Holocaust survivor. I mean, if, if I had antagonized a lot of Jews, rightly or wrongly, would I want the judge to be Jewish in my case? I don't think so, right? Or, you know, what if I uh, had said a lot of things uh, that were directed towards blacks? What if, you know, what if I was in the Ku Klux Klan? Would I want a black judge? You know, if I was a Klan, of course not. Not that I'm saying that Donald Trump is as bad as somebody from the Ku Klux Klan, but obviously people are going to be biased. And recognizing that people might have biases, and the biases may uh, be a function of their religion or their ethnicity. You know, what if what if the judge uh, was a homosexual and I'm a, I'm a known homophobe? You know, I probably don't want a homosexual uh, judge. Not you know, but again, the homophobe probably is. Uh, prejudiced against against uh, against homosexuals, but that, so that maybe that's not the greatest example. But the point is, you can recognize even like probability, right? There, there. I forget the percentage of young black men who 
have been in jail or have been incarcerated. It's a huge percentage. It's something like, I don't know, 25% of black men have been in jail, right? I mean, it's a huge number. And it's almost all drug-related. I mean, that's that's the problem. But there was, uh, you know, a, a hundred or let's say, you know, I don't know yeah, let's say there was a hundred uh, young black men in in a room and then there was another room there was a hundred white women and someone said well guess uh of these random hundred people that we grab which of these groups has a higher number of people who do you think went to jail who have been in jail right and if i got a group of black men versus a group of white women if i said i think more of those black men went to jail than those white women does that make me a racist because i'm making my determination based on race, because I'm, I'm saying, well, because they're black and they're men, they're more likely to have gone to jail than white women. Does that make me racist against blacks or racist against men? No. It just means um, I'm looking at the probability. I'm looking at statistics. Young black men are very, very likely, or much more likely, rather, to have been in prison than white women, or black women, for that matter, or white men. I mean, that's just the reality, or Asian men. Now, does it mean anytime you meet a black man, he's been in prison? No, of course not. But if you had a group of them, obviously, statistically speaking, there's a better chance that, that they've been in prison. And so that's the same thing that Donald Trump is doing. He's just saying, well, yes, is it for is it 100% for sure? Is he sure that this judge is biased against him because of the fact that he's Mexican and he has said, things that have been interpreted as being anti-Mexican. No, Donald Trump isn't saying he knows for sure. He's just saying maybe that's it. Because I don't know what the other reason is that all these rulings are going against me, and I'm just thinking maybe that's it. That's all he's saying. The problem with this political correctness is even the Republicans are afraid to stand up to him because they're afraid of being called a racist themselves. One last thing I want to I want to finish up on. I want to you know a lot of people commented on when I talked about my last podcast on my son and his experience with his final exams. And so, and after that, he had one more final in music. And he said, Dad, I got to tell you about this one. Because he said, this is even worse than the cards. So I said, okay, give, get, let, let me know. So he told me a story about his music class. Now, he had a final in music. And apparently, it was the only real exam he's had all year. And the final involved... Uh, there was recordings played of music, and you had to decide whether it was being played in a major key or a minor key. And you would just write, you know, major or minor, and there was only 10 questions, right? And, and so he told me that he, he got a 40% on the exam the first time he took it. And I said, 40? How do you, I mean, even you know, a monkey would get 50, right? If you just toss a coin, I mean, it's, it's like true-false, major-minor. I said, how did you even not even do as well as just pure guessing? And he said, well, I didn't really know what, a major, what major or minor was. We, we, we never really taught it. And I said, what do you mean you weren't taught it? He said, well, the teacher never taught us. And I said, well, well how about the rest of the class? How they do on the exam? Well, they all did just as bad. Nobody knows what it is. I said, well, how are they testing you on something that they never even explained? But then he told me, well, the teacher said that if you're not happy with your grade, you can take the exam again. So he took it again, and his score went down. He actually got like a 20% the next time he took it. I'm like, 20%? I mean, that's how, I said, how could you do that? You know, and, and then he took it, I think he said he took it a couple more times, and he got a 20 every time. 
And I said, that's ridiculous. I mean, by the third time, you should have realized to just do the exact opposite of what you, what you thought the last couple of times, because then you would have got an 80%. Whenever, if you're about to write major, write minor. If you're about to write minor, write major. But then he told me that he then figured out finally that the exam was always exactly the same. Every time he took it, the exam was always the same. And so he asked his professor, hey, can I take it again? Uh, but can I have a copy of my old exam with me while I'm taking it? And the music teacher said, well, if you think that'll help, you know, go ahead. You can have a copy. So we took it again for the last time, and he got 100%. And so now he got an A in music. And he told me that he was getting like a C, but now that he got an A in, on his final, he aced the whole class. And so he ended up getting an A uh, for his report card. But I asked him at the time, I said, so you got 100%. You got an A on your music final. I said, do you have any idea what the difference is between a major or a minor? And he says, no, I don't. So I, I brought him over to the internet, and I just went on YouTube, and I, I, I typed in, you know, you know major, minor, whatever, I, and I got a video with a guy on a piano, and I, it was a five-minute video, and I said, okay, let's listen to it. And the guy went over the difference between a major uh, a chord and a minor chord, and, and, and he listened to him, and I said, do you get that? And then he said, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, he goes, I thought that the majors were actually minor. And the minors were major. He, on his own, he was able to figure out the difference in the sound, but he just mislabeled what was major and what was minor. That's why he kept getting 80%. He actually was, was accurate, but he didn't know um, what he was hearing because the teacher never told him. And so after we finished listening to this video, I said, well, do you understand the difference? And yes, now we can hear the difference in tone, and he can see the difference between a major chord and, and a minor chord. And, and he basically said, so, you know, I just learned more by watching a five-minute YouTube video than I learned for an entire year in, in my music class. And that pretty much sums up the, the educational system. In fact, I asked my son, I said, you know, well, didn't your music teacher, didn't he play the piano for you guys? He goes, no, there's no piano in the class. There's no piano? No. I said, well, did he ever play an instrument in your music class? Did he play the violin for you? Did he? No, nothing. He's never once played a musical instrument in the music class. I think when I was growing up, I think part of the requirement to teach music was actually knowing music, being able to play music on an instrument. I mean, that's also how you teach it. So here he's got a music teacher that doesn't know anything about music, that can't even play music. In fact, probably the reason that he never taught the class the difference between major and minor is because he doesn't know the difference himself because he doesn't know anything about music. That's why he's a music teacher. You know that old expression, you know, those who can do, those who can't teach? Well, apparently, those who can't teach get assigned to my son's school, although maybe that was uh, Woody Allen's line. Oh, no, those, those who can't teach, teach Jim, and then those who can't teach Jim uh, go to my son's school and, and teach music. But, of course, you know, the problem is you get these teachers, and they're a member of the uh, labor union, and they don't have to know anything. They don't have to do anything. And, of course, I'm not bad-mouthing the whole profession. There are good teachers out there. The problem is the bad teachers far outnumber them. And the problem is you don't have merit pay. You've got all these labor unions. And the teachers that do well don't really get rewarded for excelling. And the teachers that do poorly don't get punished. And that is socialism in a nutshell. And that is why all you Bernie Sanders uh, supporters who are feeling the burn, that's why socialism does not work.
Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.